Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to HR Work Break. I'm your host, Maddie Collins, editor of HR Daily Advisor. HR Work Break takes a quick but close look at everything human resources. For any HR professional, it's a must listen. I hope you learned something new, take some advice to heart, or simply stay abreast today's trending topics. Now, it's time for a work break. In last week's episode, I was joined by John Register, Paralympic silver medalist, board member of the American Association of People with Disabilities, and a member of Canary's Advisory Board. Let's jump back into our conversation on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. One thing that we haven't really discussed yet is invisible disabilities. So while it's very easy to see if someone is an amputee or something, how do you think HR companies can help people who have less visible disabilities acclimate to the workplace and feel supported there too? That's a great question. I think there's some alignment here. I don't know. I may go off the rails <laughs> <laughs> with invisible disabilities because they are real. For example, you know, I have some PTS from the Gulf War. And so you can't see that. If I wear pants and I'm going through TSA, most TSA agents don't realize I have an artificial limb. So truth be told, if I go through TSA with my pants rolled up or shorts on, sometimes they don't catch it either. So that scares me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's some ways with inside of employee resource groups and business resource groups that we can align other communities that have to identify. So in case in point, we have a LGBTQ and I, right? So we have that community that sometimes they have to say that these are the needs of that community in this group, as with the person with a disability has to self-disclose some of those things. And we have to choose to, quote unquote, come out to share those things. I stated earlier when what is the culture of the organization that makes it safe to do that, right? Because there is a reason why people hold back and don't want to come out because they don't feel as if they're going to belong anymore. And when we don't feel as if we're going to belong, we will tear stuff up to belong or we will kind of go dormant and just say we'll we'll try to hide stuff so that we can still stay inside the fray, inside the fold. Yeah, but that's such a bummer because ideally you should be able to be your true authentic self in the workplace and anywhere you go. We should be, but it doesn't happen. Exactly. So just like we said with the, uh, the 1990, we wanted people with disabilities to be employed. And in 2022, the needles only moved down like 0.5%. So yes, we have best intentions, but best intentions don't mean a hill of beans if we're not doing any work towards it. We must begin to open our apertures. That's an alignment that has to happen. And so we can use allies from other groups in order to say, how did you get this done? How did you do this so that I can bring my full authentic self into the workplace and the work environment? Because as you and I both know, If I bring my full authentic self into my work environment, I'm going to get the best product output for it. And so that has nothing to do with anything. But if I have a hidden disability, I have to be in an environment where I can actually share it because I might need an accommodation for that disability. And just like others might need accommodations for what they do. And so I think we can all learn from each other because remember I said, disabilities cross all the groups, every one of them. I think that's a great thing for us to do. And then once we have self-identified, that begins to help our culture expand into the belonging that we were talking about earlier. And I think that is what moves the needle forward faster. Dr. Harry Edwards, sociologist out of Cal Berkeley, primarily talks about the black athletes from 1968 until today, was very involved with Colin, Colin Kaepernick, very involved with from the San Francisco 49ers. So I heard him speak at a DEI conference at the NFL, riveting. 
because I was trying to figure out how can I build this youth program for U.S. Paralympics? And it was really tough because, well, I couldn't put my finger on it. So I, I just didn't know why. So he gave me a way to look at it. And he said that there are three things that have to be in place for sustainable change to happen. The first is a dependable and developed pipeline of talent. The second is a persistent and a pervasive demand. So somebody that's advocating for the talent. And then third is the institution or the organization or the association that's being impressed upon to change actually has to want to change. And when you have the perfect storm, you will sail, you will crush it. But if you don't, you usually get a quota system and that begins to break down culture in the organization. Because if I find out that somebody was only hired because of fill in the blank, then I don't think that they deserve to be there. And I'm going to be less likely to promote them up the chain because I don't know if they should have been there in the first place. So that comes in the psyche of the organization. And so as HR professionals, when we're hunting for talent, we have to open up the aperture for all the talent. Do we have the best talent? Where do we say the best talent is coming from? We're just at the World Arena here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And these young ladies were playing volleyball and uh, they're the volleyball championships. And I saw the winning team and they were all saying, yeah, we're the best, we're the best. And I looked around and I said, well, you're the best of everyone that can pay $10,000 a year <laughs> to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because not everybody can pay $10,000 a year annual. And then they say, well, I, my daughter just won the scholarship. I said, but you've been playing for five years. So actually you've invested $50,000 in that person's scholarship. So we don't look at it from that place. Where's your talent pool coming from? And can you open the aperture up to include everybody in that talent pool? Secondarily, when he says that there's a pervasive demand, what is our demand to say, we're going to advocate for this talent that needs to be in our company to expand and grow our company faster, to bring more of what their full selves and authentic self to work no matter where they're coming from. So I'm going to advocate for them. And then third, that's why tone from the top is so important is the institution that's being impressed upon the change, they have to actually have to want to change. So they have to articulate over and over again, this is the way we're going, we're not going that way, and they have to toe and hold that line to make sure that everybody understands that this is the culture. And so then people can self-select themselves either into or out of the culture. So it's never going to be on the organization. They're going to, people will choose what's most aligned with them, them and their values. Yeah, and it feels like it comes down to being genuine and being committed to the values that you set in place too. For sure. So yes, I think those folks have really helped me to understand. And that's why I couldn't build the program because we really didn't have in the Paralympics a pipeline of talent. There are pockets of it, but you know, you think about grade school, where do your kids with disabilities, either intellectual or physical or hidden, where do they have an opportunity to grow and see someone that looks like them at the NFL level or something like that? We don't have it. Uh, and then secondarily, is there a pervasive demand? One group that's really advocating for that talent that we don't even have. Yeah. And then third, the institution that was being impressed upon the change, I don't know if we really wanted to change because we were just kind of cherry picking those that would go to the Paralympic Games. We didn't have a pipeline of talent. We didn't have a pervasive demand. So we didn't have all three of it. So I asked Dr. Evans, how do you build it? He says, you have to create value. You have to invest to create the value across the board for that. And that's, it's a challenge, but you can do it. So example is, I'll keep using sports because I'm a sports guy. <laughs> for example, and we'll put this into context of work environment. So say there's a grade school. You have a child or a couple kids that are there that are totally blind. Why not in gym class use the tool or the sport of goal ball, which is 3v3. It's a blacked out sport, so everybody's wearing a blindfold. You roll a ball trying to score in a goal on the opposite side of a court, about the size of a volleyball court, and it has a net in the back. 
and there are three people versus three people. There's, there's a bell on the inside of the ball. So it's an auditory game. And the ball comes and you have to dive in front of the ball to stop the ball. And then you have markings on the floor, tactile markings, to orientate yourself on where to throw the ball back across it to try to score on that one. At the Paralympic level, the game goes so fast. The ball's coming at you about 35, 40 miles an hour. Wow, that's fast. And you would swear those folks could see the ball. (laughs) (laughs) They're just right on it. (laughs) They're right on it. But it teaches those skill sets, right, that at the grade school level or teach you orientation and teach you teamwork, teach how to use other aspects of our senses to do that. And we can do the same thing in the work environment. We can open up that aperture to begin to say, okay, I want to understand how if I am a wheelchair user and I'm coming into the bank because the bank is my job and I have other customers that I want to open up to because uh, you know we got all these people picking at the banks right now and the, and the credit unions because uh, everybody else is opening up these banks <laughs> around. How do I get more customers in and, and protect them? Well, if my ATM is up here, you know, high. Yeah, you can't have any privacy for your PIN code. And so in Australia, they were losing about $8 million a year at the AZ Bank. Wowza. So what they did was they invested in the lowering those ATMs and moving a place where you could actually wheel up underneath. So your chair could go up underneath. And now you can type your PIN number in and secure it. So they were saving about $8 million a year just because of that one shift and change. So what else are we missing in the workplace, in our work environments, because we're not asking the question in a universal design context? Yeah, that reminds me of this really cool um, series on YouTube. This guy who's colorblind helped businesses design dynamic logos that anybody could basically see because the difference is even like in shared spreadsheets, like if you're blue, uh, yellow colorblind, you might not be able to differentiate between certain like highlighting patterns, which would make processing and handling that information even more difficult. You're colorblind too? I'm colorblind too, yes. Oh my gosh. I would love to see that YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have to figure out where it is and I can pass on to you as well. Absolutely. That's another thing, right? I didn't even realize that until I was trying to join the Air Force. Oh no. I did those color pattern tests. I did everything great, spatial tests, up and down, going all the other stuff. I I passed those flying colors. When it came to seeing those little dots, I, I saw like two out of 20. Oh man. So what does that tell me about what I've been missing all my life? I didn't even know until that point in time, right? So I want to identify that and disclose that like I just did here. So now I just got a resource. Yeah. (laughs) It kind of just tells us the exact same thing we've been talking about, that when we self-disclose and we identify this, the opportunities are endless of what can open up to us. But if we don't even know, we don't self-disclose it, it will never get done. Yeah, exactly. And like, as it becomes more integrated into everything we do, like I have bad vision, I wear contacts and glasses all the time, like that just became a normal accepted part of everyday life. The more that we disclose and the more that we talk and the more that we tap each other's resources, the more it's just going to become the norm so that everyone can kind of operate at the same level. Yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah. So we've touched upon recruiting and how important it is to genuinely want the talent from every single applicant pool. So do you have any advice on how to create a framework that puts that into practice? The answer is yes. When I do my keynotes, people have asked me the question, John, how did you overcome the adversity? Mm-hmm. And so what they're really meaning is how did you overcome the amputation? But that's not the question they're really asking, even though that's what they're asking. And so I struggled with that. I really struggled with how I overcame my amputation until I was about to do a TEDx talk. I didn't have it. I was about to call the curator and say, I'm not going to do it because <laughs> I don't have any new thought to say. And I was having lunch with a person and he asked me the same question. And I said to him, you know, had I overcome the amputation of my left leg, I'd have my leg back. 
And that's the response he did and everybody else I began to share that with. So I realized in that moment and all these reactions I was getting that there was something there. And that became my first thread of this contextual model I'm about to share. And it wasn't that I got the leg back because that's not what overcame. What I overcame was my mindset around it and all those fears that were in. So the contextual model I offer is a very individual model because it's up to me as the individual to shift the way I'm thinking or arrest some of the biases that I have in order to see a larger aperture of the talent that's coming to me. First is we have to get past the point of reckoning. The point of reckoning is graduated from when we realize we do not get back what we desire to have back after some type of trauma has impacted our life. We don't get that back. So oftentimes it comes out in our mindset of, I just wish things would get back to normal. Can we just do it back that way we used to do it? But that might be your new normal. Well, that's not the new normal yet. Okay, gotcha. That's the first thought of, I'm beginning to wrestle with something here and I'm having some conflict because I always want to go back to the way it used to be. And when I feel that, that's when I have to begin to say, I got to pay attention and say there's something else going on. When I can get past the wording or phrasing or, or the way that we show up as I wish things would get back to normal, that's our first jump. We've gone past the reckoning moment. Now we're into the transformation moment. The transformation moment is graduated with a jump, a hurdle that we have to go over. And there are three things I believe that hold us back. I'm not sure if I've said this before, but the three things are other people that believe for us what we can or cannot do based upon what they believe they could or could not know if they were in our situation. And society, we, we talked about that, society impacts on that. And then third is once we've kind of got this vision in our mindset, we have to jump. Yeah. <laughs> I've had some of the world's best hurdle coaches that have trained me to run the hurdles, but none of them ever ran a hurdle race for me. In that context, we have to jump the hurdle that's in front of us. And sometimes the other people in society hold us back from those jumps because, well, what's the boss going to say? I know I need to hire this person over here, but what's the culture of the organization going to be if I do that? How am I going to look to my peers if I do this? And we begin not to hire, so we take the safe path and not the path that might be the best for the organization. And we see it all the time. We take the safe road. And that diminishes the organization because we know to do it, but we don't. We choose not to. Once my truth outweighs my fear, I will commit to a courageous life. I'll commit to courageous acts. So when I commit to it, there's no turning back. So that's the difference between the reckoning moment and the commitment to the transformation moment. Because when I commit to something, the definition of the commitment is I can't go back to the way it used to be. There's no way I can turn around and go back. When I said I was going to amputate my left leg because of this freak hurdling accident that I had, and I, they couldn't repair the artery, and the doctor says, you can either keep your leg and use a walking wheelchair for the rest of your life, or I can amputate your leg and you can use a prosthesis for the rest of your life, the choice was mine. And once the doctor executes on the choice I made to amputate the leg, I do not get my leg back, no matter how much I want it. <laughs> no, it's not like a video game where you go back to your last save point. It's how it is. It's not Jumanji. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when we make the commitment. And that's the new normal mindset because it begins with a rebirth. So people are sick and tired of the term, the new normal. I get it, but I've been using it for over 28 years, the new normal. And the reason for that is one, we feel powerless with the words. I wish things would get back to normal. That's how we're usually saying it. Or two, it's a present state of paralysis. I guess this is just my new normal. And in both those ways, we can't move forward. But new, when we break the word down and define it, new means no prior point of reference. 
So if new is no prior point of reference, why are we using old thoughts, old systems, old ideas to put into a new bucket to get a different output? It's the definition of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. So what are the rituals we have in place that lead us to a rhythm that elevate us to a rise that create the desired results that we're looking for? So the new normal can't be a destination. We don't arrive at the new normal. The new normal is a plateau by which we grow. And it's very hard because it starts with a rebirth. When I have my leg amputated, there is no reference point of walking with two legs that now will benefit me trying to learn how to walk with a prosthetic. They are total different things. And that's when we know we've made the commitment. We cannot go back to the way it used to be. Now, I might have in the rebirth, in this growth process, what I'm trying to learn, phantom limb pain. Many of us, when we went through the pandemic, we had what I call a cerebral amputation. Mm -hmm. We desired to have a point in time back that was no longer accessible to us. And we had pain in our mind of going back to the way it used to be. Mourning or fixating on the past just takes away from your present and your future. Like you got to keep walking forward. Once you cross that hurdle, you still have the rest of the race still. Right. And you can't go back. Remember the context of the commitment. You cannot go back. In the reckoning moment, you're in that loop. You can. You, you can play around with going back and moving forward. And before you get to that transition, that jump. As soon as you jump, you cannot go back. Yeah. I would challenge anybody that if you can go back to the way it used to be, you're not in the new normal mindset. You are in the reckoning moment or in the transformation moment. So you're in one of those two. You're not over the commitment. Because this begins, I'm going to learn new information. We heard it from, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey, Brown and Taylor, George Floyd. We had a rational kind of awakening <laughs> and all the DEI experts were like, well, I wonder how long this is going to last. <laughs> Are we willing to actually commit and learn in this process, right? Because that takes time to learn, to shift the way that we've been thinking about something. And are you committed to it? Are you really committed? Because for me to go from amputee to silver medalist in the Paralympic Games, it took uh, swimming for physical therapy, making the Paralympic Games in 1996 as a swimmer, and then four years later, winning a Paralympic silver medal in a long jump. That process took seven years, right, to learn how to walk and to learn how to use a prosthetic and to learn how to run and to learn how to jump. That, it took seven years for that. Yeah. Well, we want it right now. We have been two years removed from that, and we're already saying, we need to go back to the way it used to be because, you know, this, I'm tired now after two years. <laughs> we're very much in the reckoning phase, like you said. <laughs> we haven't even shifted. So that's how we measured over time. And Dr. Harry Edwards would say, if we talk about Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling or not kneeling, right? That, that's not the issue. The issue becomes, how do we show up and provide oxygen into people's environments? Because oxygen actually makes us think better or take it away. If we take oxygen out of the environment, we do crazy stuff because we don't have enough oxygen in the room to make sound and good decisions. And so the question is not whether you want to vaccinate or not vaccinate. The question is not whether we want to wear a mask or not wear a mask. The question is not really if we want to kneel or stand during an anthem. The question is, how do you show up in a person's life if they, if they choose something else? Yourself, individually, you, not your political stance, the other people or society. How do you show up? Do you add oxygen in your environment depending upon of somebody's opposition to the way that you believe? That gets us closer to belonging. So once we do the work, now we are in the new normal mindset. Now we move from rebirth to the resolve. And resolve is I've done the work. I know exactly how I'm showing up. I'm never going back to the way it used to be. You need to catch up to where I am. It's not braggadocio. It's just because you've done the work. Yeah, it's just the fact of the matter. If you missed out on part one of my conversation with John, check out HR Workbreak episode 34. 
Be sure to tune in next week for the final segment of our discussion on disabilities in the workplace and DEIB best practices. Again, I'm Maddie Collins, and thank you for listening. Join us next Friday or whenever you need a work break.